Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you are going to hear part nine in my series, God in the Frontier, the impact of the 19th century burned over district and the psychology of faith. Now, if you've made it this far to what is about to be chapter nine, I want to thank you because I've currently done about, what is it, nine hours of podcasting all on the Burned Over District. And chapter nine, which is the final chapter of my book, is called Sifting Through the Burned Over District. And there are just a lot of interesting things that I think using the microcosm of the Second Great Awakening and the Burned Over District, we can use it to analyze religion and faith as a whole. And I'm primarily going to do this by focusing a lot on the psychology surrounding faith and belief. But before I get to that, I want to warn everyone today that I am going to talk about a pretty sensitive topic that I notice that a lot of people will automatically shut down on whenever there's an attempt to have a conversation about this stuff. A big focus of the next couple of sections, which I cover in today's podcast, is going to be on evangelicalism and religious exceptionalism. And I'm going to also talk about the century-old conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. There are countless things you can read up on and learn about regarding this conflict. It can seem overwhelming or even numbing. So I want to say as a reminder before I get into this is just to remember back to my very first episode because that is the episode where I really laid out the purpose of No Character Limit and how I wanted this podcast to be about deeper topics without having to necessarily be an expert on those topics. I've talked about a lot of different religions so far and a lot of different beliefs, and I am not an expert on any of them. And even though I do a lot of research and I source my work, there are still things I know I've gotten wrong and am still going to get wrong. So some people might argue, well, if you're not an expert on this, then you shouldn't be talking about it. But I disagree. I don't believe that in order to have a conversation or to talk about an ongoing issue is something that should only be left to the experts. I do try and do my research, and I do share opinions throughout this entire book and throughout this entire podcast. But 
I am also open to learning more or having my mistakes corrected. And I think that is all you need to be willing to do if you are going to discuss some pretty sensitive topics, even if you're not an expert. Now, with saying that, I do reference different experts. And one of the biggest experts I reference in this one is Robert Fisk, who is a war correspondent who had documented nearly every aspect in the Middle East for decades before he died a few years ago. I quote extensively from his book, The Great War for Civilization, which is a great resource for learning about the conflict between Israel and Palestine. The other thing about what I'm about to talk about is that I can see people taking this as merely a political opinion. But as is evidenced by everything I've talked about so far, I'm not really coming at this from a political angle. I'm coming at this from the moralistic angle, the idea that we have beliefs about right and wrong, and that Christians have beliefs about right and wrong, and how they come to manifest when Christians, especially evangelicals who have taken so much power over the last century in the United States, and how their morals manifest through the government. And just like how in episode two, I talked about the Haudenosaunee and how Americans came and took their land and tried to make fake treaties and use them for enforcement and push the Native Americans off of their land and questioning the moral fiber of the Christians who did this, I am going to question some things about evangelical leadership in America today. My hope is that even if you have a staunch belief on these things already, that you're willing to take the time to listen for an hour about another opinion that might give you new or different information or might give you a different perspective than before. The big focus of this first part of chapter 9 is really going to be how religious exceptionalism colors not just the beliefs of evangelicals, but of all religions. And I really do try and make that a point as you go through and listen to the whole thing. Chapter 9 is also my longest chapter, and I've calculated it out, and it is going to take four episodes to get through. That is longer than any of the previous chapters so far that have at most been only two episodes. I think this is the most fruitful part of my book because it discusses a lot of things about our mind's connection to faith, which is something that no generation before us truly understood. And while there is always more that is out there to learn, I feel like the things that we already do know and have learned 
are just not talked about enough. I just wanted to give that warning. Please, if you notice a factual error, always feel free to contact me. If there is another opinion you'd like me to consider or alternative beliefs you'd like me to look at, I'm always open to them. You can always reach out to me through Twitter or email me. But in this episode, I'm hoping you will take the time to reflect over your own beliefs on these very sensitive topics that I know just has to offend somebody because the conflict in Israel and Palestine is probably the most contentious issue of the last hundred years. All right, please like, rate, or review this podcast if you've been enjoying it. Also, please consider a donation if you have the money and you've been enjoying the content. And so now, please enjoy part nine of God in the Frontier. Chapter 9, Sifting Through the Burned Over District Part 1, Winning the Heart of a Nation, Evangelicalism Over Calvinism Western New York was originally coined Burnt Over by Charles Grandison Finney, claiming that the religious fervor that defined the Second Great Awakening was felt nowhere stronger than in the western reaches of New York State during the 19th century. But was this true? The religious awakenings in the New York frontier has caught the attention of historians ever since. Early 20th century historian Whitney Cross author of The Burned Over District, The Social and Intellectual History of Enthusiastic Religion in Western New York, 1800-1850, supported Finney's conclusion. Western New York in early 19th century was a hotbed of social reform. Abolitionist movements, anti-Masonic movements, and suffragists were all active in the Burned Over District at the time. Add to that revivalism, spiritualism, Millerism, and Mormonism, all of which led Cross to state, quote, Western New York contained a people extraordinarily given to unusual religious beliefs, peculiarly devoted to crusades aimed at perfection of mankind and the attainment of millennial happiness, end quote. Cross was considered a leading authority on the burned-over district for most of the 20th century, and was also a product of the region, born in Rochester and employed by Cornell University, located in the Finger Lakes. But more recently, historian Linda K. Pritchard has disagreed with Cross's assessment and provided some data of her own. 
The counties of western New York did not stand out when compared to the counties in the surrounding region, or even nationally. There were no more churches nor greater variety of beliefs than anywhere else in the nation, and, Pritchard concluded, the burned-over district appeared to be quite average. Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Congregational, Roman Catholic, Episcopal, Universalist, and Dutch Reformed denominations, widely adopted religious beliefs across America at the time, were more concentrated in the burned-over district than anywhere else, implying a comparative lack of major religious change. So, was Cross biased about his home region, or was there a change of another sort than the data that Pritchard had reviewed? The answer to this might again lie with Charles Grandison Finney. Western New York has always been an estuary of East Coast and Midwest cultures. Finney was surrounded by the Calvinist beliefs of New England that had reached the New York frontier when he was growing up. But it was the fervent evangelicalism that was sweeping the nation during the early 19th century that had roused Finney with so much passion, and Methodism was considered the evangelical crown jewel that was converting Calvinists in droves. Pritchard interestingly makes note that Methodism was the one denomination that was unusually low in the burned-over district in 1850, compared to regional and national averages. But Pritchard states that this was not unusual because, quote, Western New York's historic roots were in the Congregationalism still dominant in New England, end quote. In other words, they were more conservative and Calvinist, sprung from their Puritan roots. It was Finney's trip to Rochester two decades earlier, in 1830, where the evangelical faction was able to gain the upper hand over the Calvinists and help change the course of influence for the rest of America. Finney's great Rochester Revival in 1830 and 1831, and subsequent conversion of the wealthy class of the city, was an overt denunciation of the area's conservative Calvinist roots. Finney could have personally been responsible for significantly raising the number of evangelical Methodists in the region. The factional differences between the orientations of Calvinism and Evangelicalism was one reason Finney was compelled to come to Rochester to begin with. By 1850, the time period where Pritchard reviewed the changes in the burned-over district, Methodism was actually the most popular religion in the area, but the percentage was still much lower than the rest of the Ohio region as a whole and even below national averages. By 1860, Methodism was the only major religion to show substantial growth in the burned-over district and at the cost of all other major denominations. 
What Finney may have been referring to when he called the area burnt over was just the change from New England's conservative and European-influenced Calvinism to the more American-styled evangelicalism, specifically Methodism in this case, that was already sweeping most of the rest of the nation. The rest of the country was already largely evangelical in their beliefs, so this switch away from Calvinism would not have been as prominent elsewhere to the revivalists akin to Finney. By taking Rochester and the surrounding region, the evangelicals had essentially blocked the westward expansion of the Calvinist ideology insulating New England's religious influence to the northeast. So, a historian like Pritchard, who was looking for more of Cross's unusual religious beliefs, would not find them so easily in the census numbers where Calvinist and evangelical beliefs were both considered well within the religious norm and widely practiced. And an obvious limitation of Pritchard's review was that she only compared the numbers between 1850 and 1860, two to three decades after Finney's famous Rochester revival. So she would not have seen the same impact as if she started as early as, say, 1820. The only conclusion that can definitely be made with Pritchard's review is that Methodism was on the rise between 1850 and 1860. To talk about Christian orientations such as Evangelicalism and Calvinism can seem tedious, but this underlying Christian debate has been happening for centuries without resolution. Both evangelicalism and Calvinism have strong underpinnings in most of American Christian denominations today and are still at odds with one another. Calvinist denominations such as Presbyterian, Congregationalist, or Reformed churches continue to hold firm to their conservative hierarchical beliefs that go all the way back to John Calvin in Europe. The belief of predestination, which states that only God will choose who he will save, and that all people are sinners destined for hell, is still held by 100 million people worldwide, many of which are Americans. But of the two orientations, it is evangelicalism that still holds the greatest power across the world today with over 600 million adherents, the largest amount of which are still located within the United States. Baptist, Wesleyan, and mega-churches all lean to the evangelical side of the spectrum. There are no shortage of philosophical debates and discussions where evangelicals denounce the concept of predestination, particularly when it comes to one's own salvation firmly holding that if a person truly repents, that they can be saved by Christ. At the heart of evangelicalism, there is a baked-in belief of the American dream. Unlike the fatalistic attitude of Calvinists, evangelicals believe in self-determination, that if 
anyone is willing to work hard enough, they can change even their destination after death. It's not in the hands of God, but instead the individual to determine both their life and their death. This was emphasized in Paul Johnson's Shopkeeper's Millennium, where Johnson acknowledges that in a boomtown that could hardly handle its rowdy workforce, that putting spiritual responsibility back onto the individual was convenient for the individualism of capitalism. Calvinism came with its own set of benefits and drawbacks, but the evangelical focus on the individual has taken the focus away from any collective responsibilities. But it was also largely evangelicals that were at the forefront of the 19th century social movements calling for the end of slavery, supporting women's rights, and allowing women to be in more powerful positions within their churches. However, evangelical and Calvinist underpinnings don't cut so clean. Surrounding the prism of Christianity, different denominations pick and choose from evangelical, Calvinist, and other widely accepted Christian orientations. Each shade slightly impacts the view of each individual around the Christian prism, making the experience and understanding of one significantly different from the next. Despite fundamental splitting on the purpose of humanity, or what God or Jesus really are, the shades of Christian orientations create an interwoven tapestry that allows Christians to find a grain of similarity in a sea of differences. Some Christian denominations have little more in common than agreeing that Jesus and God exist, despite vastly different explanations on what existing even means. There are evangelical Presbyterians and Calvinist-leaning Baptists and countless other orientational splits bleeding between denominational lines. At its heart, God is often used as a placeholder for the unknown, a reality that everyone experiences, but each experiences differently. And so the meaning and intention of God changes depending on the individual. The conservative religious nature of Calvinism has become more appealing to evangelicals as their political beliefs have strayed towards conservatism, which is a marked contrast to their 19th century social justice crusade where they stood up for equality of women and ending slavery as well as defying the traditional Calvinist underpinnings. Evangelicals, the Christian majority in the United States with the strongest amount of religious and financial influence today, have found that slowing change feels safer in a time that no longer resembles the frontier of the 19th century where they were once the underdog. Now in a position of power, 
evangelical leaders increasingly support orientations that stifle mobility and progress. Once the David, evangelicalism has now become America's Goliath. Too much self-determined change could challenge the well-established evangelical leadership across the nation, which has become a financially lucrative political powerhouse. Traditionally standing for strong family and moral values, evangelicalism has found itself in the halls of the highest powers in the world, making morally questionable deals that share little resemblance to their grassroots origins and instead sharing a lot of similarities with the Catholic Church right around the Protestant Reformation. But as wealthy, influential evangelical leaders go and make deals with warlord dictators or promote American politicians that don't demonstrate evangelical values, it is often justified with the belief that they are still spreading the message of Jesus. Nothing demonstrates the power of evangelicalism in the United States more than the National Prayer Breakfast, which has occurred every year for the last half century. Every single president in the United States since Eisenhower has gone to the National Prayer Breakfast that has been put on by evangelical leaders originally led by Doug Coe. Jeff Charlotte has written a book that has inspired a 2019 Netflix documentary called The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power. In the book, Charlotte carefully demonstrates how Doug Coe and many others in position of power have used Jesus and evangelical support to influence politics across the world. The criticism that Charlotte and others have levied on Coe and other evangelical leaders is that they are cherry-picking different aspects of the Bible and Christianity and using it to maintain and grow power, pushing those out who don't agree with them, even in cases of serious and genuine moral concern. Many people associated with Coe and the family through the years have formed close relationships with brutal leaders and dictators in places like Eastern Europe and Africa. Growing their legitimacy using America's National Prayer Breakfast, they bring the same concept of breakfasts to other nations, even those that have committed acts of brutality. But this criticism is not levied at Doug Coe alone. Evangelical leaders such as Pat Robertson are known to be associated with African warlords and precious mineral mines that enforce work with the most brutal forms of slavery. Evangelicals like Oliver North, who was convicted of crimes against the United States government in a position of lieutenant colonel during the Iran-Contra scandal, are easily forgiven by the evangelical leaders and put in positions of power, like North was at the NRA, right at a time when the organization had been accused of poor financial management and foreign entanglements. 
no matter the potential illegal or immoral activity that is occurring in the name of evangelical Christianity, it's important to overlook and support anyone who verbally demonstrates their commitment. Their actions often encouraged to be overlooked. A similar in-crowd network was built within Rochester around the time of Finney's visit. Those who attended church, were temperance supporters, or supported the Whig Party were more likely to be hired, promoted, and granted loans by the powerful leaders of the young city. And when they fell on hard times, or did something unpopular, such as underhandedly stealing the treasury position through a secret vote, they were still supported. Those who didn't attend church or who drank alcohol were less likely to be hired, less likely to be promoted, and less likely to be able to get their hands on finances for business ventures. And they were actively hounded and boycotted until they either gave in or gave up. Betsy DeVos, Donald Trump's education secretary before she resigned for his actions on January 6, 2021, is known for her strong Christian beliefs, but they have Calvinist rather than evangelical roots. This has not gone unnoticed in the evangelical community, but very few evangelicals speak out against DeVos's stances and policies, despite often going against the long-held tradition of evangelical support of inclusive and special education. DeVos advocates for a deeply privatized school system, which often comes at the expense of supporting disadvantaged families, as her home state of Michigan has increasingly demonstrated. While this concerns some evangelicals, many are willing to overlook it for her overt Christian background, even if the orientation might be a little off. The hues of the Christian prism are suddenly ignored. Details can be sorted out later and sacrifices are willing to be made provided that the broad-stroked narrative is being told. Christians supporting other Christians doing unchristian things for the advancement of Christianity, it is a story told over and over again. These are merely the most high-profile Christian leaders who have committed to controversial practices, but there are other forms of silent and increasingly not-so-silent evangelical consent regarding topics of abortion, sexual preference, allowing churches to contribute to politicians while remaining tax-exempt, and removing social safety nets. The social advocacy once so pronounced within evangelicalism has been muted with the implicit understanding that any growing disparity that a person might encounter due to their silent or overt support in the advancement of Christianity can always fall back on their church for help. But this ignores the millions of Americans who don't prescribe to the morally questionable compromises made by religious leaders, or who don't prescribe to the religious beliefs at all. 
the more nuanced conversation about the imposition of one's personal moral orientation onto the public at large are not openly or meaningfully discussed and debated within the evangelical community. There is rarely conversation on how not everyone can be forced to have the same belief. The fact that there are many Protestant churches that support different sexual orientations, the sort of social support the government should be providing, or the problems that come with an openly religious state, such as under the Tudor dynasty of England. All of those deeper moral questions that require empathy, research, discussion, and debate are subducted and imperiled in hopes that Christianity, purely in name, will continue to gain strength, even if it comes at the cost to itself and in a compromised form. The origin of such 21st century Christian power comes from America's strong roots in Protestantism, particularly evangelicalism, which was promoted by 19th century leaders such as Charles Grandison Finney during the Second Great Awakening. While Finney and the rest dedicated their lives to the uncomfortable commitment of traveling around the American frontier with little more supplies than a tent to preach in, today, evangelical leaders define their status by the number of private jets and mansions they own. America has just as strong roots in capitalism, but there has been very little explicit support on making a capitalist fortune through being a religious leader. The 19th century stereotype of the poor preacher just looking to save another soul has turned into the 21st century stereotype of the televangelist pumping his congregation for every last cent, looking to purchase another private jet to make international business deals. The HBO series, The Righteous Gemstones, parodies this change with John Goodman's character, Eli Gemstone, turning his father's impoverished yet honest ministry into a multi-million dollar mega church riddled with the immoral behavior of his adult children. The Gemstone ministry holds three private jets named the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is this what Christian leadership was meant to look like? Because, setting aside the parody, this is what 21st century Christian American leadership looks like now. Chapter 9, Part 2 a microcosm of religious exceptionalism, evangelicals, and Israel. While the stories of the burned-over district during the Second Great Awakening might seem quaint or naive sometimes, we still live with the same cognitive biases and mental errors today in the 21st century. And I think there's no better example of this, especially with evangelicals overlooking immoral behavior for the advancement of Christianity, than the century-old conflict between Israel and Palestine. 
This topic of Israel and Palestine is one of the most sensitive topics to discuss in the world because it is a flashpoint for a lot of emotions. But I still think it is important in our greater discussion on religion, so I want to dive in. Countries like Israel receive billions of dollars regularly from the United States because of a strong, evangelical, Christian Zionist belief that the Jewish takeover of Palestine will bring forth prophecies in the Bible, including, of course, the millennium, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Evangelicals defend this belief that God had prophesied the Jewish return to Israel. Evangelical leader Pat Robertson put it like this, quote, Yes, the survival of the Jewish people is a miracle of God. The return of the Jewish people to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a miracle of God. The remarkable victories of Jewish armies against overwhelming odds in successive battles in 1948 and 1967 and 1973 are clearly miracles of God. The technological marvels of Israeli industry, the military prowess, the bounty of Israeli agriculture, the fruits and flowers and abundance of the land, are a testimony to God's watchful care over this new nation and the genius of this people. Yet, what has happened was clearly foretold by the ancient prophet Ezekiel. End quote. Robertson then goes on to quote the prophet Ezekiel, who stated that God will return the Jewish people to their home. And while this prophecy is enough for most evangelicals to accept, there is also a second argument for those who find the grounds of prophecy iffy, as anyone familiar with the Great Disappointment should. Any secular historian will talk about the complex issues surrounding the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They will talk about Britain's colonial involvement and promises to both Zionist Jews and Palestinian Muslims. They will talk about divisions created within Judaism over Zionist beliefs, a sort of fracture in the Jewish prism. Secular historians will also talk about the terroristic actions taken by Zionist Jews, such as the bombing of the King David Hotel, well before the modern era of terrorism the West associates with Islam today. And secular historians will also talk about the use of the Israeli military to break agreements on the ownership of land in the same way the American government broke treaties with Native Americans. The entire history of this violence, which is only about a century old, is a slow-burn tragedy fueled by the ambition and resentment of two religious cultures with Christians fanning the flames. Historical precedents exist for both peace and violence between these three belief systems, 
but all groups involved have continued to embrace the cycle of violence by unceasingly citing divine will as their purpose, just as Pat Robertson did when he invoked Ezekiel's prophecy. But evangelicals repeat an alternative history to the one that secular historians usually give. And it's one that's actually more widely accepted than the one that the actual historians relay. It resembles the sort of mental gymnastics that Mormons play when archaeological and genetic evidence don't pan out that there were ancient Israelites in America years before Columbus connected the old and new worlds. Evangelicals portray Israel as a democratic beacon of freedom that is constantly under genocidal and existential threat. Yet, over the last century, it has been the Israelis who have aggressively taken Palestinian land without giving up a single square foot of Israeli land. In fact, American evangelical politicians often invoke anti-Semitism as soon as anyone attempts to demonstrate that Israel has played a more aggressive role. Robertson says it like this, quote, Of course, we, like all right-thinking people, support Israel because Israel is an island of democracy, an island of individual freedom, an island of the rule of law, and an island of modernity in the midst of a sea of dictatorial regimes. The suppression of individual liberty and a fanatical religion intent on returning to the feudalism of 8th century Arabia. End quote. In an article written by conservative journalist David French, he extols the virtues of evangelical support of Israel while echoing similar lines. Quote, then there's basic morality. As I've written before, from the very moment of its founding, Israel has been subject to repeated genocidal threats to its existence. It has defended itself in the face of overwhelming odds, faced enduring terrorist threats that we in the United States can't imagine and built an imperfect but well-functioning democracy that grants all its citizens, Jewish and Arab, a greater degree of individual liberty than the citizens of any other Middle Eastern nation. The pernicious persistence of anti-Semitism heightens the moral case for supporting Israel. There is zero justification for the UN's obsessive focus on alleged Israeli crimes. Actual genocidal tyrants face less condemnation by the UN Human Rights Council than does the State of Israel. The boycott, divest, and sanctions movement proudly holds Israel to higher standards than it holds the entire rest of the Middle East and most of the rest of the world. Some of its founders and leaders hope to eradicate Israel as a Jewish state. End quote. While history does objectively show that Jews were forced from their original homeland a few thousand years ago, 
The evangelical and Israeli narrative doesn't even allow the space to acknowledge that the land located off the eastern Mediterranean has 10,000 years of history filled with countless cities, cultures, and empires that had all risen and fallen along its shores for many millennia before and after the ancient kingdoms of Judah and Israel existed. It wasn't even the Muslims that had attacked the ancient Jewish kingdoms, but instead long-dead empires. And when Islam did arrive on the scene, there have been many more examples of Judaism and Islam coexisting than not. Although Jews have suffered pogroms and negative treatment wherever they've lived, regardless of whether they've been in a majority Christian or Muslim country. Now, millennia after they were forced out by distant empires, suddenly they get to invoke a divine right to the land. How can one be certain of the meaning behind prophecies like Ezekiel's, and what does it mean for everyone else who doesn't feel prophecies are enough for establishing international policy? But evangelicals and Israelis are quick to respond with an emotional Finian fervor in a way that implies the right of Israelis is unquestionable with whatever their decisions are. So I want to offer another perspective by the well-respected war correspondent Robert Fisk, who have seen the events between Israel and Palestine play out in person and being there firsthand. He has watched every step of the action in the Middle East since the 1970s, and he disagrees with the evangelical Israeli super-narrative. After meticulously explaining the complex situations that were occurring in the early 20th century international politics, including Israeli acts of terrorism against the British government, which went as far as booby-trapping dead British soldiers hanging from trees with bombs and assassinating British prime ministers, Robert Fisk reflects on the Israeli and American stances in one of his books. Quote, there is a fierce irony in all this. Israel came into being after a classic colonial guerrilla war against an occupation army. Yet, within 50 years, Israel's own army, now itself the occupation force, would be fighting an equally classic anti-colonial guerrilla war in the West Bank and Gaza. The connection, however, often seems lost on the Israeli government. This question of honoring one's own murderers while condemning the other side's killers as terrorists is one that lies at the core of so many modern conflicts yet one that both of the Israelis and the Palestinians have failed to understand. For throughout these long years, there was one outstanding, virtually unchanging phenomenon which ensured that the Middle East balance of power remained unchanged. America's unwavering, largely uncritical, often involuntary support for Israel. Israel's security, 
or supposed lack thereof, became the yardstick for all negotiations, all military threats, and all wars. The injustice done to the Palestinians, the dispossession, the massacres, not only the loss of that part of Palestine which became Israel and is internationally recognized as such, but also the occupation of the remainder of the Mandate territory and bloody suppression of any and all manifestation of Palestinian resistance. All of this had to take second place to Israel's security and the civilized values and democracy for which Israel was widely promoted. Her army, which often behaved with cruelty and undiscipline, was to be regarded as an exemplar of purity at arms. And those of us who witnessed Israel's killing of civilians were to be abused as liars, anti-Semites, or friends of terrorism. End quote. While there is a strong Jewish lobby in the United States, it is the evangelicals who actively lead this bewildering, ironic, unquestioning, and even hypocritical support for Israel. While the Palestinians are not solely victims, Israeli Jews and American evangelicals come together to forcefully create a narrative that solely looks at them as aggressors and refuse to acknowledge the depth and moral conundrums of which this conflict has given rise to. There is not any meaningful recognition by Israel of the Jews who did not support the aggressive ambition of Israel, just as there is no meaningful acknowledgement by evangelicals at the highest forms of leadership who recognize Christians critical of this violent stance. And yet, there are countless Christians and Jews who do not support the violence committed by Israel because they believe those actions do not truly reflect their religious beliefs. The century-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict is an evocative religious quagmire that clashes worldviews of nearly half of the world's population, all of whom believe in the same God but follow vastly different religious beliefs. This single issue doesn't just cut to the core of the Christian prism, but to the core of the Jewish and Muslim prisms as well. It is a hairline fracture lodged at the heart of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, ready to shatter everything with just the slightest pressure. All three beliefs claim the same history of the same God, but are deeply divided on how to define everything else. To acknowledge the humanity of one of the other competing groups is to deny the divine exceptionalism each belief has spent centuries carving out for itself. It's difficult for many Muslims to recognize that Israel is taking land in the name of their religion in the same unapologetic way that Muslims had expanded their territory for centuries. 
it's difficult for many Jews to see Israel as an aggressor who systematically destroys the homes of innocent civilians in the wake of the Holocaust. And it's difficult for many Christians to accept all the ways they fund and support religious violence when it benefits them, despite it being against the teachings of Christ. In many ways, the history of Zionist Jews forcefully taking Palestinian land resembles the violence the Mormons committed in the American West when they claimed the land was divinely theirs, just like the Rajneeshis in the 20th century. These groups were not just interested in peacefully worshipping, but instead they were interested in consolidating power. Palestinians who fight back have more in common with the Missourians who defended their land against the Mormons or the Oregonians who defended their land against the Rajneeshis than the Israelis who claimed divine right to the land. For any religious group to recognize these types of connections, they would also have to recognize that they too hold their own beliefs of religious exceptionalism. Acknowledging that any religious belief is not exceptional, but is instead typical across humanity, can create a mental breach that can be too much for many to handle. Recognizing that people are prone to exceptionalism when there is nothing exceptional there can tear entire worldviews asunder. If that is the case, then suddenly Israelis don't have the moral high ground to just take without question from Palestinians. Suddenly, seeing American leaders befriending brutal dictators in the name of Jesus have to be questioned for ulterior motives. And suddenly, that circle of trust brought forth by faith feels smaller, and what is right and wrong in situations isn't so clear and simple anymore. To truly serve some greater power, there would have to be less human-created fictions dictating policy and more evidence-based practices built upon by common human morals, knowledge, and wisdom. When there is no religious exceptionalism, then deep, existential questions begin to creep up and consume whatever is left of that religious belief. A sense of identity can feel lost and a paralyzing fear can take hold. But the Chautauqua Institution is just one demonstration on how differing beliefs don't have to compete, but they can instead collaborate. It is possible to look at what each belief system brings to the table and have an evolving view filled with more evidence and facts and less fear and doubt. There are important considerations to respect regarding the relationship of the Jewish Israelites and the traditional Muslim Palestinians, but Israel has been nearly universally condemned as not respecting them, forcefully taking land from families who also have deep cultural and legal roots in the region. 
while many people paint the complex and tragic history of Southern Levant as obvious and clear, the reality is, it's not. While the Israeli government defends any action of violence taken against Muslim Palestinians, the 14 nations who voted for a UN Security Council resolution all voted against Israel's right to the land. But the United States abstained from the vote in silent support of the continued expansion of Israeli settlements on contested land. The United States has even allowed Israel's possession of nuclear weapons to become the world's biggest open secret since Israel does not officially acknowledge that they have them. And this is something that the U.S. is typically very micromanaging about with other nations. Just think about that for a moment. Religious exceptionalism has allowed the United States to stay silent on an entire nation that holds and can possibly use nuclear weapons. That is the strength religion has on international policy. One might consider this American pressure to come from the Jewish population in the United States, the second largest population of Jewish people in the world after Israel. But this assumption would be wrong. When President Donald Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital in 2017, it was to flaunt the impotence of the UN resolution decrying Israel's encroachment into land that wasn't theirs, and it led to nearly half of American Jews to report in a Pew poll that Trump favors Israel too much. But when evangelicals were asked if they agreed with the same statement in the same poll, only 15% consented. Tourism has been booming in Israel, largely from American evangelicals who promote tour guides to holy sites under Israel's control. While evangelicals come for the historic and religious sites, Israel also assiduously works a public relations campaign that does not accurately represent the long-standing violence in the region, focusing instead on ensuring that the tourists go home as supporting the Israeli government. For these evangelical Christian Zionists, Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel only brings things closer to the millennium in all its destructive glory. The unsettling thing about this destruction, that is often openly embraced by evangelicals, is that they think this will be their moment of glory, even as the world as we know it is destroyed. But what if the destruction comes, but Jesus doesn't? Are evangelicals committed to repeating the same Millerite story arc that ends in a 21st century great disappointment involving nuclear weapons and the destruction of ancient holy lands of three of the world's most powerful religions? Is there any room in the evangelical dialogue on how the interpretation of prophecies 
can be wrong even among the most faithful, just as they were in Millerism? The faith of the Millerites was not questioned, but their God-given ability to reason was. Accepting the idea that William Miller might have been wrong was sacrilege to many, despite the likelihood of it being true. And now, evangelicals hold to the same idea that another millennial prophecy regarding Israel is just as true, even at the expense of innocent people, without thinking twice about the Millerites. Evangelicals might look at the Millerite denominations of Adventism and Jehovah's Witnesses as warnings of what the human mind can continue to focus on no matter how many previous prophecies were wrong. Now, there is either a very good reason for every prophetic disappointment experienced by the Millerite denominations, or maybe instead there might be something about the human mind that craves divine intervention. What is it about the human mind that keeps bringing us to be enticed by prophecies and spiritual experiences? And what happens when these human minds with these predispositions come together in groups? In the next section... I want to focus on how the way our minds are wired have given rise to these sorts of predispositions and beliefs. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. 
If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at no character limit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>